0: Cannabis Show. I've got uh, my partner in crime, Larry Mishkin, on the line. Larry, say hi. Jim, how you doing?
1: Wish I was out there with you, though. That's all I can say.
0: Yeah, we're really looking forward to these shows. The the band has been playing so good. I just can't believe how good they sound. And as you all probably know, John Mayer got to play Jerry's Wolf guitar. They went and got it out of Hawk at the uh, Met. Maybe we already talked about that in the last one.
1: A little bit, but that's okay, because it was very cool that they did it and that he got to do it. And You know, it would be wonderful if they'd let him take it on tour, but they probably don't want it to get too far away. Right.
0: And uh, yeah, since then, I've listened to a couple of uh, the songs that he played with the Wolf guitar, and it's just fabulous shows. Anyway, we have a special guest today. I'm here with my good friend and associate,
2: Duke Brumley. And Duke Brumley's association is... Hi, everybody i have started a nonprofit called sober af entertainment safe and
0: duke has oh. uh, worked in the uh, drug and alcohol rehab community for a number of years and he and i have had many good talks over the years about the pros and cons of sobriety and alcohol and drugs and uh, marijuana and today we want to talk about the uh, social impacts of legal marijuana from the point of view of the drug and alcohol community so um Duke, I'm going to throw it over to you and uh, sort of give us a 50,000 foot view and then Larry and I will have some questions
2: for you. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. So, Jim, I appreciate your support when I was working in the treatment world helping get some people in treatment. And thanks for this opportunity to speak about our new nonprofit. So safe Create safe spaces in fun places. We use our nonprofit status to get discounted tickets we set up a sober safe zone inside music festivals concerts and sporting events to create a secondary culture out there that is not out there right now ideally for anyone who wants to be in a community that is not with people who are drunk or high and so you'll be going to the shows today and tomorrow correct so we've been up and running for 13 months we've hosted 37 events we've had over 1500 people join us and for an event like this for Dead and Company we're throwing a sober tailgate 2 hours before the event and anyone's welcome to come and then ideally they go into the concert and there's already a sober support group inside called Warfrats and the Warfrats have been around since 1983 I believe and it was really one of my early introductions of uh, sobriety at Grateful Dead shows which really made sobriety cool So this was back in 1989. So what we're doing today is just setting up uh, yellow balloons and having a sober tailgate for folks. And uh, ideally, people can come and kind of recharge their batteries and realize they're not the only ones who will be sober at dead Company.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the War I've seen their tents and uh, booths set up at shows for many, many years. I've actually seen them have AA meetings at Setbrick.
2: Correct. They have uh, kind of a check-in meeting, and uh, it's ideal for anyone who really wants to have fun and see Dead & Company, but might feel a little triggered by being around a lot of people who are smoking
1: weed or people who are drinking. Like 50,000 people hey, drinking. Like, yes. <laughs> it's going to be a pretty big this number. On, so. Hey, Duke, no, it's Larry, Michigan. First of all, it's a, yeah, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for for coming out today and, and having this part of the conversation because I think that it's a part that typically gets lost in all the excitement over everything else that's going on. And we forget that, you know, while some people are celebrating, there's other people who, you know, it's a real issue for. And, you know, the fact that it's so readily available probably doesn't make their life any easier. I'm glad you mentioned Warfrats Rats, and uh, I, I love the idea that you've taken it outside of the stadium and introduced it, you know, to the whole community pre-show and everything. And... You know, it, it's it's funny, Jim, because this really this, this segues so well into everything that we're you know that we're talking about here. Think about it—a a rock and roll band who's you know the, the whole mystery and everything behind them all centered around marijuana and LSD—and and yet out of that community, kind of organically grew this group that said, you know, we want to be a part of this too. We just don't want to be that part of it. And you know, the fact that they were able to do it and that they get it all set up like that and that it's become it's a standard part of any show i've ever been to there's always that group and you can always find them i, I think it's a wonderful thing and you know duke you here to be congratulated for you know bringing it to the next level
0: so we're going to talk about cannabis of course and cannabis as it relates to uh people trying to get off of harder drugs duke has a lot of experience with people trying to get off of opioids and before the show you mentioned a, a drug that you deal with that helps people get off of opioids
2: right so Jim was kind of asking about what do I see as the culture shift in the treatment world over the last 10 or 20 years since Colorado's had legal recreational and legal medical marijuana. And really, mm-hmm. my comment was we've seen a bigger shift with um, a drug called Suboxone that uh, is a opiate blocker that people take and it goes in to the brain and basically will just allow people not to get high on opiates, and that has been really the biggest shift over the last five years where insurance companies came in and made sure that if you were gonna get paid for residential treatment, you had to use this drug. So that has been really the biggest shift that I've seen. I've also mentioned that we're definitely working with kids who have some type of psychosis issue from using the much higher THC, either edibles or wax, and having a hard time to be able to adjust to residential treatment until they kind of get this psychosis taken care of.
0: Right, we were talking about that. And the way I look at it is concentrates like oils and waxes, your various edibles. It's kind of like beer is to whiskey. And it's almost the same process because to make whiskey, you start with a beer mash and distill it down. And for the concentrates, you start with a plant matter Cannabis, usually the trim or other byproducts, not necessarily the flour, and those are distilled down into your waxes and terpenes. And of course, they are much stronger. And you don't drink as much whiskey as you do beer.
1: But in theory, in theory, some (laughs) people don't get the stock. That is the problem. Right. That's what
0: what Duke's been working with.
1: It's just fair to say, right? That's not your father's marijuana. It's a whole new era. And we are, you know, I think it's an important part of the education for everybody as well to understand that that's not just taught, but when we get into these things like waxes and even some of these, uh, you know, vape cartridges, which advertise themselves out at, you know, 95% or something like that. That's almost kind of scary.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. As someone who's tried dabs occasionally, it's much stronger than I, than I would like for, for myself. Yep. Prefer the old-fashioned, your, your father's cannabis, I guess. But right. anyway, um, what else we want to talk about? Of course, there's the big, you know, daddy of them all, alcohol, which right. causes more problems than I think all of the, all of the drugs put together. And tell us a little bit about
2: your path to sobriety through some 30 years, you said. Right. So I had a very intense experience with alcohol around age 17, 16 years old, and it rewired my brain. No matter how much I thought I wasn't going to drink, my mind would change its own mind. At age 21, oh. parents took me to rehab and I've been fortunate to be sober ever since, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's the 12-step community. There's parental support. There, I was in college and had good structure. um, But a big part of it was kind of the social aspect, and I was able to go to Grateful Dead shows with high school buddies who still drank and still got high, but if I was able to kind of hang out with the wharf rats, it was able to make sobriety cool. And that's what we're trying to do with this new movement. I had a 20-year-old and 17-year-old, and they were having bad experiences with their friends at Red Rocks and different concerts where they would go, and then they'd be texting me that their ride was on ecstasy. And I just thought it's kind of ridiculous that these young kids didn't have a secondary culture. So we went out there to create a secondary culture for anyone who – was looking to have some fun and trying to prove they could have fun without having to be on ecstasy. And the fear as a parent who's 51 years old with now a 21-year-old and 18-year-old is I'm gonna get that phone call that they did cocaine and there was fentanyl in it, now they're dead. So we started this nonprofit and we're getting ready to take it national this fall.
0: So Duke, I have a question for you. How is the alcohol and drug rehab community handling people who are using marijuana to get off opioids
1: or that's what i wanted to ask jim that's a good question
0: using you know and say there's legitimate reasons for the opioids maybe you just had a knee replacement or a hip replacement as you know friends us aging baby boomers all have friends in those categories and they find they can take less opioids if they're mixing uh, combining it with um, smoking cannabis right any comment on that
2: so we in colorado have been kind of the forefront of a lot of things and we did have a sober living that was allowing people to um, smoke marijuana or use marijuana and live in sober environments and that didn't play out very well i would say typically if there's a pain medication issue there's certain treatment centers, Las Vegas Recovery Center and others that are a little more pain management, and they would use some non-addictive medicines. And I'm not quite sure what they are, but I haven't heard of any treatment centers that would allow cannabis to be the pain management while they're going through treatment. But we were kind of talking about like this next generation coming up right now seems to be less about alcohol and more about marijuana because
1: they like the way they feel the next day. Well, let me ask you this question because when I go to a lot of these conferences, one of the most popular attractions are the uh, athletes for care, the former football players and the former hockey players primarily, uh, you know, who all became very opioid dependent during their playing days because that was all they could use to to deal with the pain. And, you know, uh, post-playing careers, they found themselves, you know, lying around the house still – on the opioids, you know, having trouble having relationships with their family and everything else. And they all tell the same stories about how they used marijuana to transfer themselves off of the opioids and, you know, back down to a much more manageable state where with some marijuana here and there, they could address most of the issues that they had been addressing before, you know, and they really kind of looked at it as a savior, you know, that got them off of these opioids. And in Illinois now, you know, our governor last year put in place a program uh, for anyone who's on an opioid prescription. At all, their doctor can write them into the uh, medical cannabis program for up to 90 days at a time, recognizing you know the potential value that it has to help people get off of the opioids. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that.
2: So that totally makes sense, and that's why I think it's there. So to me, that would not be my concern. Uh, you know, my concern is more underage prevention and also. Yeah. Uh, prevention for the people, let's say 10 percent of people who have a hard time regulating the amount of marijuana they're smoking. But to your point, you know, the CBD, the THC, I think as a replacement to opiates um, seems to be working.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, Jim here, all of our evidence is really anecdotal. It's people we know who've been able to cut back on their opioids with marijuana the thing I'm sure we all agree on is there needs to be much more research and development in this area to see, you know, what are the medical aspects of cannabis and medical marijuana? You know, the federal government has blocked that for so long. I hope that we're getting to a place now where the research can be done. Uh, The Israelis are are very much ahead of the United States. Larry, I think you've actually been to Israel recently, haven't you?
1: That's correct. I was there in April and had an opportunity to hear everything that they're talking about. And, uh, Rafael Meshulam, who was a Holocaust survivor, and moved to Israel after the war and became one of the uh, leading researchers in the world on this. I mean, go back to the early 1960s, and he was isolating THC and CBD. The Israeli government, their medical community, has 50 years of patient records for people who the government has given THC or CBD to to help them, and for testing purposes with a variety of, of illnesses. Unfortunately, you know, in the United States, we still hold out and say that there has to be testing uh, you know, through the protocols that the FDA sets up and that all the doctors are used to. But it, it really kind of rattles me a little bit when people suggest, well, there's just no research out there, so we don't know the answer. And that's, that's incorrect. There's a lot of research out there. It's just a question of, you know, whether people take the time uh, to go and read it. But you're right, Jim, Israel has, has been a real leader in this industry, you know, for the last half century.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation and it could go on for a long time. But let's shift gears, because today is what I call the Grateful Day. Yeah,
2: baby. It means yep, we have sir. a show
0: tonight. We're all really fired up for it. I haven't seen Dead & Company for a year since they were here a year ago, but I've certainly listened to a lot on the Grateful Dead channel, and they sound terrific.
1: And I saw them, and they then, were great. So you're, you're in for a treat.
0: As Anybody listened to the last program or two, we're going to co- focus in on one of the positions in the band and talk about it in general. And today we're going to talk about bass players. And yes. I just saw Phil Lesh about a month ago at Red Rocks, and at 79 years old, he just filled Red Rocks with his bass. It was fabulous. He played two 90-minute two sets, and he came out early and played with the warm-up band, so lots of great energy. And then last Sunday, I saw widespread panic, and I'm happy to report that David Schools is still thumping away. A big man that he is, he, he reminds me of like a big walrus over there, just thumping away on the side <laughs> of the stage but uh and he's also playing uh a custom six string modulus bass very similar to phil's then o- O'Teal
1: this year has a new bass and i don't really know much about it yeah Do you I, know that i saw that it looks almost like it came out of prince's house you know it's got one of those weird designs and shapes to it that yeah we saw it though and, and uh, it's in chicago it looks very cool you'll see it that's great yeah so well, here's my I, yeah, feeling yeah. on it you know mm-hmm. I say, you know, we all go to the shows and we're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Jerry was there? But of course he's dead, so that's not really an option. We all go to the shows and you want to say, gee, Bill not being there, he's alive, so it is an option. So then it brings you down to the difficult point, right? I happen to be a big fan of O'Toole Burberry. I thought he was great when he stepped into the Allman Brothers. Every time I've seen him, he does not disappoint. He's got a wonderful voice, great enthusiasm and energy, and he, he really has the songs down well. Having said all of that, and I say it all with utmost respect for him, and I think he might even agree with this. They can play the other one a hundred times, but until you have Phil's booming bass that is, you know, his particular style, his particular way, or in Jack Straw, Jim, you and I have talked about that, when they come around on mm-hmm. uh, Jack Straw and all of a sudden Phil is there in the front of the stage, you know, rocking the whole auditorium. You know, that comes with the connections that we were talking about last week, like the drummers have with one another. You know, and Phil yeah. is really part of that family, and I think the hardest part of going to Dead & Company is knowing that, that, that Phil is out there, but he's not playing with them. Now, right. again, having said all of that, you know, Phil, Phil has a tendency to sing sometimes, and unless it's one of his songs, I'd, I'd rather he just stick to playing the bass, <laughs> <laughs> if Phil types up with a song, I, I can listen to him he, when he does come to time, you know, it brings tears to your eyes. He's that good. Yeah, well, what you're talking about is
0: what they call fill-bombs. He just <laughs> yes. comes right down the neck of his guitar, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-boom, and just fills the arena, or fills Red Rocks with a giant bass note. Back yes, in dude, the day, we it... You can feel it go thing. through your body. Yeah, you can feel you can feel it. You know, and I'll, I'll bring Mike Gordon into this conversation, too, because obviously as a bass player for Fish, he's one of the leading bass players in uh, touring rock and roll today and these yep. bass players are not especially interested in sharing their trade secret now there's a lot of intellectual property that goes into their bass guitar and their rig and all the technology and, and certainly in the case of everybody we're talking about money is not an issue they can have any rig they want in the world and they're all right. not all that interested in telling other people exactly how they have it set
1: up i know for sure mike gordon has said that publicly yeah and, and you know mike He's a great example, too, because, you know, in many respects, half the time, I don't even think of him as a bass player. And when they do that, uh, you know, a a Mike's groove, right? And as they're coming out of uh, I Am Oxygen or whatever the the bridge song is, and they're jumping into Weka Park groove, all of a sudden, Gordon jumps up to the front of the stage and he plays his bass as though it was like a guitar, right? The way he has about that, you know, 25 or 30 second introduction, and he's wailing on a bass guitar like I've never seen anybody. That, to me, just outstanding.
0: And of the four bass players we're talking about they all do have a very unique sound whether it's how they play the bass or their their setup and their amps but you certainly Mike's bass and Fish very very unique you know we've talked about Phil with his Phil bombs and and David Schools when he um he's every you know he like spreads his legs about shoulder width apart and leans back and looks straight up at us at Red Rocks and ba 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 boom comes out of yep. out of his yep. so yep. yeah all very four great bass players four great unique sounds and so we'll look forward to seeing mr O'Teal burbridge today what's the what's the song that he's been singing this tour with dead and co it's really good and i'm thinking the name of it right now
1: i got it you know the shows me saw, he didn't really do a lot of singing in chicago they, they kind of filtered away from him but that's what i love about him because like when they had him do comes a time a couple of years ago which is one of my all-time favorite jerry songs and it just kind of came out of nowhere and there was O'Teal up there doing it and boy, he's really a talent. And, and, you know, you're right. We could talk about all these guys all day long. And, you know, Phil probably has an edge just because he's the grandfather of the group and has been around forever. But for me, you know, the one thing that makes Phil really special too, and I know we isolated this on Mickey Hart last week as well, is that, you know, Phil is responsible for, you know, one of the, if some people would say the greatest song in the entire dead canon of music. And I was at hampton beach virginia in 1987 when they broke our 86 87 when he broke out box of rain uh, for the first time in 15 years and you know of all the shows that i've ever been at where they where they broke out songs uh, that one may have been the most electric where people all thought he was stepping up to the mic to sing tom thumbs blues which he had been singing a lot on that tour and all of a sudden they broke into box of rain and you know, people were just sitting there singing along with tears in their eyes because you don't you don't know if you're ever going to see something like that again, and uh, it was it, it was definitely one of you know the top three or four highlights of my entire Dead touring career.
0: Love box of rain, and now that you mention it, maybe we'll get a, a box of rain uh, tonight or tomorrow night. Some of the folks may not know that box of rain. Phil wrote that about his father when his father was passing away, and that's the the last line yep. of that song. Such a long, long time to be gone, and a short time to be there. Right?
1: Yeah whenever they uh play that as an encore right at the end of a show when you hear that and that's exactly what you're thinking because it's like four hours just flew by in the wink of an eye and now they're gone again and it's true yep. you know you, even when they're there and even when i stop and stay there here i'm really, boom it, it's too much happiness it flies right by and but you know what that's a good thing because it just leaves you wanting more
0: yep it, it sure is and it reminds us all that we're here for a very short time and
1: enjoy every minute while you're here Amen, brother. Well, next week, I think it's time to move on to rhythm guitar and our good friend, Mr. Weir. And that should be a fun conversation, too, because I've been doing a little more research on him lately and talking to people, and it's beginning to change my thoughts on him a little bit, but we'll touch on that next week.
0: Well, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to talking about Bob Weir because I've had a, a long, long relationship listening to, to, to Mr. Bob sing, and as uh, yep. Big Steve Parish recently called him, he calls him the the California Songbird. So we'll talk about him next
1: week. <laughs> That's a great name. Well, great, Duke. Let me just say again, it was a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing all that information with us. It, it's 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 informative, and I think it's also really helpful in terms of giving us ideas on how to you know move forward in this industry while being cognizant of uh, you know people who are out there who you know may support what we're doing, but not by participating themselves. Right. You bet
2: feel free to check out the website. It's uh, soberafe.com and um, we're going to be in New York and Miami and all over this coming uh, fall, so you can check out the yes, our yes. entire schedule on that. Excellent.
0: Alright, everybody, over and out. Very we're, good. we're off to Folsom Field. We're, we'll report back on the two dead shows next week.
1: Have I a great day. Stay right.
2: Blues, Blues, yeah. calling it. Alright, bye now. Thanks, guys.